Okay, Acts chapter number 13 is where we're going to be at. And in this passage, we have kind of turned the corner uh, with the ministry of the local church, the early church there from uh, being centered around Jerusalem and around the Jews to now it's going to have more of a Gentile focus. And so there's going to be that shift that takes place there. And... um, We're also going to see a shift that takes place from being centered around Peter and uh, the original apostles to being centered more around um, around Paul and Barnabas later on Paul and Silas. Okay, because Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles, and it's been interesting watching how uh, God is moving, how He is unfolding these things. I've said several times already that. Um, the book of Acts is often called uh, the Acts of the Apostles, but it is actually the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And it's showing how God is working behind the scenes, how God is orchestrating things, and God is making things happen. And uh, that's been going on all throughout this. And now as the the Jews have started rejecting uh, the gospel, rejecting Jesus, rejecting the early church, uh, God is causing the apostles and uh, the believers to leave Jerusalem, to leave uh, Israel, and to venture out into the region surrounding there. Because Jesus told him before he left that he wanted them to be witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we've been seeing that happen, but our focus on this has been all along how God is orchestrating it. And last week what we looked at was the call of Barnabas and Paul from the church at Antioch. And I think this is interesting because uh, it wasn't the Jerusalem church that was the first one to send out missionaries, right? Uh, and I said last week, some could say, well, Barnabas was sent out of Jerusalem, but he wasn't sent out to preach the gospel. He was sent out to check up on what was going on in the region where the Gentiles were getting saved. And so he was sent out more like a spy than what he was a missionary. But he went down to uh, Antioch. He saw that there were many people getting saved, and they needed to be discipled, and he saw that he couldn't do it himself. He went and he got help from uh, Paul, and they began to disciple the church there at Antioch. And after they'd spent a little over a year there, it tells us there in chapter number 13 that the Holy Spirit moved them to separate Paul and Barnabas for the work that he had called them to do. And our emphasis in that is that God wants his work to go forth. God wants his gospel to go forth. Jesus didn't come down and live his life, a perfect and sinless life, on this earth, preach and teach for those years, and be offered up as a sacrifice for us, uh, for the church to remain stagnant, for it to be only just another uh, Jewish sect there in Jerusalem, or still for it to be stagnant today. God desires for the gospel to go forth. Uh, If we look at the scripture in its entirety, all of the Old Testament was God making his plan come into place. It was God from the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God working out a means for salvation all the way through the Old Testament. And so God didn't put that much effort into it. He didn't bring all these things about just for them to stay in place. And so God is stirring them up through the Holy Spirit. God is working to send them out from that place 
so that all, all people could hear, so that all people could have a chance to be saved. And so as we saw there in the first part of Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit had already been uh, moving Paul and Barnabas, but he confirmed it in the church. And we see there's a pattern of God and his spirit working through his church. It's not a thing for uh, Lone Rangers and Mavericks. It's not for us just to do whatever we want. But God often confirms his will and moves and works through the church. And he did that in Antioch. And so anyway, uh, it wasn't the apostles. It wasn't the mother church at Jerusalem. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and it wasn't even uh, the church in Antioch that initiated all of this but it was the work of God in them, yeah. okay? And so the reason I'm stressing this is we have, to get, uh, we have to get the idea through our heads that God is ultimately in charge. God is ultimately in control. He wants us to yield to him. He wants us to submit to him. He wants us to be willing vessels for his use. And then whenever we submit ourselves, whenever we are willing to be used of him, then he is more than capable of orchestrating the means by which he puts us to work, the means by which he uses us to fulfill his plan. Right. And so anyway, they uh, we saw their calling last week. It was calling of the Holy Spirit for the work of the gospel. We also saw their method last week. Uh, and this is something that carries on all throughout the rest of the book of Acts, is that whenever Paul was going out to preach the gospel, he would first go to the ones uh, with which he had uh, some sort of commonality, okay? Uh, one of the things that he would often do, even in the Gentile lands, is the first thing that he would do is go to the synagogue if they had one. Why would Paul first go to the synagogue? Well, they were his kindred. They were Jews like he was a Jew, and they were familiar with the law. They were familiar with the prophets. They were looking for the Messiah. So they already had a foundation there from which he could work from. He already had a connection with them so they would be more willing to hear from him. And I think that is a, a good way for us today as we're seeking to be witnesses, as we're seeking to share the gospel, we're going to be more readily accepted. People are going to be more willing to hear whenever there is something that we have in common with them. Right. And that is why it is so important that everyone within the church has a part in the ministry of the gospel. If uh, if I'm the only one who is seeking to see souls saved, if I'm the only one uh, trying to witness some things, I'm not going to be able to relate to a lot of people, people of different cultures, people with different languages, people with different backgrounds. But with each of you, you have different cultures, different languages, different backgrounds, different careers, different hobbies, different interests. You have different commonalities with people from which you can connect to each other so that you are able to have that door open in which you can share the gospel. And so this is what Paul did. He went to those that he had a connection with. And we're going to see him doing that in this passage today. And so he went to those he had a connection with, and he started with their understanding, with the things that they already knew about God. And he went from there. So that was their method. And the last thing that we looked at last week was the opposition that they faced. And this is a, uh, a tried and true fact that any time that you go to serve the Lord, 
anytime that you desire to be used of him, anytime that you are submitting, surrendering to his purposes, there will be opposition. Satan does not want the gospel to go out. Satan does not want people to hear the name of Jesus and the good news of salvation. Satan wants to oppose whatever God is doing on this earth. And so if we enlist in God's service, if we are seeking to do his will, there are going to be times of opposition. But like we looked at in the message last week, Satan may have his program, but Jesus is infinitely more powerful. The Bible says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so whenever we come against opposition, that means that rather than drawing back, rather than becoming discouraged, that needs to push us closer to the Lord and more independence to the Lord. Okay? And so that opposition is going to come. And we saw that through this, this man who, uh, Eliamus, the sorcerer, who was a Jew, by the way, whenever the Gentile uh, leader of that area was interested in the gospel, this Jewish sorcerer came out and tried his best to throw him off track. He tried his best to discourage him from listening. And through all of this, Paul was able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, confront him and silence him so that this man, I believe Sergius Paulus, I believe that he actually came to the faith. I believe that he ended up getting saved. We're not going to know this side of heaven. But God was able to do that work in that situation. And the last thing that we saw here uh, in the idea of opposition, it wasn't just Satan's emissaries that was against them, but we also saw that Mark turned aside. That as they were going out, Mark came with them, and he was kind of their, uh, their disciple, their uh, protege, whatever you want to call him, as he's following them around, and as he sees that the work wasn't maybe as exciting as he hoped it would be. Maybe it wasn't as safe as he hoped it would be. Maybe he just got homesick. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he just said, okay, guys, I've had enough, and he went back to Jerusalem. And we find from Paul's writings that this must have hurt Paul pretty greatly. Okay? Whenever they get ready to go on their second trip, uh, Barnabas wants to take Mark with them, And Paul says, no, I'm not giving Mark another chance because he already abandoned me once. He already left us once. I can't trust him. And that lets me know there was some hurt. There was a little bit of uh, maybe even bitterness that went on because of this. But what we're going to find as Christians is along our journey, there are going to be people who we used to serve with, we used to worship with that no longer do. And that is an extreme discouragement. And I've shared this with you guys in the past, but even the pastors that I grew up under, most of them are no longer even in church, let alone in the ministry. And that's discouraging for me. And I've seen so many people fall away, people that I've went to church with throughout my life, that they are uh, drawn away from God by the cares of this world. They go seeking after other things, or maybe they are just discouraged and they quit. And so we can become discouraged by that. And that also needs to serve as a warning for us as well, that we don't fall to the wayside the same way as Mark did. Because there are going to be discouragements that come up. There are going to be trials that we face. There are going to be uh, people who reject us and don't like us, people who let us down. And we want to make sure that we have determined to remain faithful. Okay? I don't want to be one of the used-to-be's. 
I don't want to be someone in your story that says, I remember back whenever that guy came over from America and was preaching here and then he quit. I don't want to be that guy. Okay? Because I want to not be a discouragement to you. I want to be an encouragement to you. I want to see you faithful. I want to see you in love with the Lord and serving Him. I want to see Him working in your lives. And I don't want to be that stumbling block. And so we saw their calling. We saw the method of evangelism. We saw their opposition. And so that brings us to today. And I know that was a lengthy introduction, but you guys should be used to that by now. Um, But Acts chapter number 13, and we're going to be looking at their message. Acts chapter 13 has Paul's first recorded message that he preached. Now, this isn't the first message he preached, but the first one that's recorded. Uh, we find that right after he was converted on the Damascus Road, that he went into Damascus and he began preaching immediately. He began proclaiming and proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So he had been preaching. But by the time we get to this point in the book of Acts, Paul has been saved for about 15 years. Okay, We're about 15 years removed from the Damascus Road. And so I'm sure he's preached many sermons since then. But this is the first one that we have recorded in Scripture, okay? And something that's interesting about it as I read through it, I want you to be kind of taking a mental note of this, is one of the only messages that we are aware of Paul hearing before he was saved was preached by who? Anyone have an idea? Stephen. Stephen. And so you remember Paul was consenting to his death. He was there standing and listening to Stephen preach his message and go through all these different things and prove Christ to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And Paul at that time, still Saul, was filled with hatred, was filled with wrath. And because of this, he wanted to see Stephen dead. And so as they took up stones to stone Stephen, they laid their coats at his feet, and he was consenting to the death of Stephen for the message which he preached. The reason I bring this out is how closely the message that Paul now preaches resembles the message that Stephen preached. So Paul is going to be saying the very same things that he killed Stephen for saying. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And so let's go ahead and read here in Acts chapter number 13. We're going to start with verse number 14. And I don't know that I'm going to read the entire thing right off. I might read just a little bit of it, and then we'll kind of read it as we go along. So Acts chapter number 13, verse number 14. It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. So we'll stop there for just right now. And what we find is that they have traveled on, they have left that that island that they were on of... um, uh, Cyprus, I believe is where it was. And they have went into another region. As they got there, they made it to Antioch, Pisidia. And as their manner was on the uh, on Saturday, 
they came into the synagogue and they sat down. They didn't make a fuss. They didn't come in and confront everybody, but they came and they sat down in almost what would have been like a church service. Uh, our church services today are fashioned very similarly to a synagogue service uh, that they would have had in early, uh, early in the New Testament, okay? And so what the Jews would do in their synagogue service is on the Sabbath day, they would come together and they would read passages from the Old Testament, from the law, from the prophets, okay? And so from the books of Moses, from the different prophets that we have in the Old Testament, and so they would read that, they would discuss that, they would sing, sing hymns, sing songs, uh, and really, the book of Psalms was the Old Testament uh, hymn book. And so this is what they would do, is they would meet together, and essentially they would have a church service. But something else that they would do is if they had any visitors that would come through who was Jews, especially anyone who may have been trained in the scriptures like Paul was, they would give them an opportunity to... Uh, to exhort the people, to encourage the people, to basically uh, teach a lesson or a message. And so uh, that came in handy for Paul and Barnabas because they would come into the synagogue. They'd say, hey, we've got visitors. You got anything to say? Yeah, let me preach to you, Jesus. Okay? And so this is what they did. And so they came, they sat down, they listened to the expounding of the scriptures, and this goes back to what we said last week. They had a connection to these people. They were Jews. They were of like faith. They could relate to them as far as their culture or their way of thinking because Paul used to be one of them, right? And they were familiar with the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They knew about the Messiah that would come. They had been taught it from a very early age, and they were looking for the Messiah, but up until this point, they had missed him. And sadly today, there are many Jews that are still in the same state because they are still missing that Jesus was the Messiah. They are still looking for the Messiah, because as you go through the Old Testament, there is, um, there is something that's hard for the Jews to reconcile with each other, because it pictures the Messiah both as being the sacrificed lamb and also being the lion that rules. And they have trouble with reconciling those two pictures of the lion and the lamb. They don't see him coming first as the lamb and later as the lion like we understand it to be today. The first time that Jesus came, he was as a lamb done before his shears. He opened not his mouth, right? He was slaughtered. He was sacrificed for the sins of the people. He was a sacrificial lamb. But when he returns, he is going to come as the king of kings and the lords of lords. So they can't reconcile this in their mind that he can be a sacrifice and he can also be a king. And so they focus on the fact that he's going to be a king, and they're looking for a Messiah that is coming to rule and to reign, to put down their enemies, to cleanse the people, and to set up a kingdom. That's who they were looking for, and they missed out the whole thing of the sacrificial lamb. Whenever John said, behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, that's not what they were looking for. And uh, a truth that keeps coming up to me over and over again is you're going to find what you're looking for, okay? And what I mean by that is if you are looking for Christ as you're going through the scriptures, you're going to find him everywhere. But if you're not looking for him, you won't find him. 
We even have a prejudice a lot of times in the way that we view Scripture and the way that we view even other things in society that if we are looking for something, we're going to find it. If you're not looking for it, you'll never see it. Just a simple illustration for that. Uh, Have you ever noticed that whenever uh, you buy a car, no one else has one like it? And then as soon as you buy it, everyone's got one. You ever notice that? Yeah, or there's a car you're like, oh, that's that's beautiful. I've never seen one like that before. And then all of a sudden they start showing up everywhere. You find what you're looking for, right? And so the Jews at this time, they were not looking for a lamb. They were looking for a lion. And so when Jesus came as a lamb, they completely ignored him, completely done away with that. And so as they came in here to the synagogue, They heard the gospel preached in the Old Testament there at the synagogue. They were hearing the law and the prophets. And we've we've covered this quite a bit. We went into the the whole study of Jesus B.C. looking at salvation in the Old Testament. And we've seen how even the law, even the the law that Moses got from from God up on the mount was a system that showed them their sinfulness and, and their need for a savior, their need for a sacrifice for a lamb that would take away their sin. That was the point of the law. And so as they're reading through the law, it's pointing out their sinfulness and their need for someone to cleanse them. As they're going through the prophets, they're seeing God say, you need to quit doing your own thing. You need to quit seeking after the gods of this world. You need to quit uh, doing the things that please your flesh and instead seek after me. Turn to me, trust in me, and that he would heal them whenever they put their faith in him, even in the times of the law, okay? And so the Jews were reading this. They were discussing it in the, in the synagogue, but they completely missed the idea that they could not save themselves, that they could not cleanse themselves, that they could not live pure, but instead they needed God to provide a savior, a sacrifice for them. And so whenever Paul and Barnabas sat here in the synagogue service, they were listening along, they were familiar with it. Paul probably could quote it as whoever was reading was reading it. He probably had it memorized, okay? And then whenever they gave the opportunity, Paul and Barnabas stood up, or Paul specifically stood up, and he begins at the very same scriptures that they are studying every week, And he says, let me show you the one that you're looking for. And he proceeds to preach this message. And so a few thoughts from this introduction for us here of of Paul's message and how this comes about is that these people gave him the opportunity. God opened a door for him. He didn't bust in there and say, you guys are all wrong. Let me correct you. Right? He didn't come in there proud and arrogant. He didn't come in there forcefully, but instead he came in respectfully. God opened a door and he walked through that open door. And the reason I bring this out is there are so many people who are brutish and that are forceful with trying to be a witness and all they are doing is building walls. All they are doing is pushing people away from God instead of drawing them to him. The way that we present ourselves, the way that we enter into 
conversation with people is going to make a huge difference in how they respond. If we just think for a minute with uh, a little bit of, of common sense, if someone comes to you forcefully, if someone comes to you arrogantly, if they come to you on the premise of saying from the beginning that you are wrong and I'm right and I need to fix you, then how long are you going to listen to them? Someone comes to you with that attitude, you're done. Slam the door, get out of here, right? And so you need an open door first. And I've told this story before, but uh, there was a guy in, in our home church back in the States that I would go door knocking with. We'd go door-to-door visitation, okay? And he was up in his 70s, and he was, there was only one of him, I put it that way. He was a unique individual. But I went out with him, and he was always one that do the speaking. I was just the young guy. And I watched him before. He would knock on the door. The person would come, answer the door. He'd begin talking with them. And whenever they became disinterested, whenever they made it clear that they didn't want to listen to him, they would go to shut the door in his face. And you know what he would do? He would stick his foot in the door. He would prevent them from closing the door. And now we weren't in Ireland. We were in West Virginia. I was afraid of getting shot. Okay? Because you are trespassing at that point. They do not want you there, and you are overstaying your welcome. Okay? And so anyway, as we see here, Paul and Barnabas have an open door. The people are willing to listen. And if you are trying to talk to someone, if you are trying to share the gospel with someone who doesn't want to hear it, if they're not willing to listen, you are wasting your breath. That makes sense? And I know there are people who want to be more forceful at it, who think, well, it's my responsibility. Here's the thing. I would much rather leave the door open. I would much rather sow the seed. I would much rather cultivate the soil than to have a wall built, have the door slammed, locked, bolted, dresser put in front of it. Okay? And so this is where it takes us being as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. This is where we have to realize that it's not up to us to save anyone. It's not up to us to convince anyone. It's not up for us to make them believe because the Bible tells us that no one can come to him unless the Spirit draws them, right? It's going to take the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. It's going to take a softening of their heart. It's going to take them opening to it and only then are we able to actually sit down and have an actual conversation for them that is going to be productive, okay? And one of the reasons why it's so important for me to say this is that we are an impatient lot. We are in the days of fast travel, instant communication, right? Everything happens quickly, but spiritual matters and matters of the heart do not happen quickly. Okay? And so as we see in this passage, they open up the door for him. They say to him in verse 15, you men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say one. The floor is yours. We're ready to listen. Go ahead. Lay it on us. Okay? And so this is whenever Paul uh, begins in verse number 17. And I'm going to read a good ways down through this. 
And I want to point out a few things as we go through it, okay? And so in verse 17, he says, The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So as we're seeing this, his highlight and his focus is on the work that God is doing. He says, God chose our fathers. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was God that did that. It wasn't that they deserved it. It wasn't a position that they earned. It wasn't something that they had in themselves. But God, out of his sovereignty, out of his ability, out of his wisdom, he looked down on this earth and he says, I have a means to bring salvation. I have a promise that's existed since Uh, Genesis chapter number three, and I need a lineage. I need a family from which I can be born on this earth as a son of man to reconcile man to me. And so I have chosen Abraham. It was God that did it, right? And then the next thing he says that it was God that exalted them. Okay, then it was God that brought them out of Egypt. And so he's reminding them of God's works, of God's actions down throughout creation, down throughout their history. And it says that uh, in verse 18, that he suffered their manners in the wilderness 40 years. Now, that's a that's a tiny bit offensive, isn't it? Basically, what he said was that God put up with them and all of the absurd things they did in the wilderness for 40 years. And so what he is making the picture clear here is that man has never earned, it has never been man that deserved, it was never that Israel was just such a high and lofty and holy bunch, but that God has dealt with a lot, that God had put up with them because he was bringing about his plan. And so he suffered their manners in the wilderness. Verse 19, he destroyed the seven nations. That was all of the ites, okay? The Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all those Amorites. He destroyed those seven nations in the land of Canaan to give them a possession in Israel. And so as Paul and Barnabas are standing before the synagogue, they are reminding them of their God and of the great things that he is doing and of the fact that it doesn't depend on them and it doesn't go oftentimes the way that they think that it will go, okay? And so he divided the land to them by lot. He gave unto them judges. Whose idea was the judges? It was God's, right? And then... Whenever they desired a king, that wasn't God's desire, that was their desire. When they desired a king, God gave them Saul, the man that they desired. And he was a pretty awful case, right? There is not a Jew in Israel then or even today that celebrates King Saul. Right? Does that make sense to everybody? 
All throughout the rest of the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, do the Jews ever celebrate King Saul and say, boy, he was one of the good ones? No, he was a picture of our flesh, of our desires, whenever we do things our way, and he was a disaster. And so God allowed them to have things their way, and it was a disaster. And after that, he removed Saul, verse 22, and he raised up to them David. So whose idea was David? It was God's. And so God gave to them David, and all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, the Jews celebrate David. David was the good one. David was the one that brought them victory over their enemies. David was the one that brought peace into the land. David was the one who wanted to build the the temple. David was the one who led them in worshiping God. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He knew how to pray. He knew how to worship. He knew how to love and to serve God. He knew how to lead God's people. Okay? And so God gave them David, and along with David... It says that David was a man after God's own heart. It was an illustration to the people of Israel at what kind of a love, what kind of a leader that God was. And so God also gave him promises in verse number 23 of this man seed God or hath God according to his promise raised unto Israel a savior, Jesus. And so this is their first mention of Jesus. And now remember, these people were far removed from Jerusalem, even though they were Jews. They may not have heard a lot of what went on with Jesus and with the jealousy uh, of the priests and of those who were ruling. They may not have heard about his crucifixion and all of the things that he had done, but now they're getting ready to hear about him. And so the, the Israelites, the Jews, knew that God had made a promise to David, right? That out of... David's lineage out of his house, all the nations of the earth was going to be blessed, that he was going to raise up someone after David to be a shepherd and also to be a sacrifice, that he was going to be the one that would lead as David led them, okay? And so they knew these promises, and as they're telling the people this, he says, God has raised up a savior. Remember I said they were looking for a a king. They're looking for someone to save them from Rome, right? And he says, this is someone who is going to be a savior, not from Rome, but a savior from your sin. And so he tells them, Jesus is that savior. Then he brings out John, who it seems that they had at least a knowledge of John the Baptist, but it says that John uh, was a witness unto Jesus. He was one that said, I am not the one who should come, but there's going to be one after me whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to loose, right? And so we see that in the end of verse number 25. And so now he addresses the people who are listening to him in verse 26. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God. Now I want to pause just a second. That phrase, whoever among you feareth God, there were Gentiles in their midst in the synagogue. The synagogue was not the temple. But these Gentiles were coming. They had been around the Jews. They had heard about the Jews' God, and they had a knowledge of the Jews' God. They had an interest in the Jews' God. And so there were people who hadn't converted to Judaism, but they they were still God-fearers. Okay, They feared the God of 
uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they would meet out in the synagogue. And the reason I'm pointing this out is by the time we get to the end of this, we're going to find that the Gentiles are excited to hear this. And you say, wait, they were in the synagogue. Where did the Gentiles come from? The Gentiles were there as well. They were just waiting to hear what God was going to do. They were waiting to hear the truth from God's word, and they readily accepted it. Okay? And so that's the, the God-fearers that we find here in verse number 26. And he says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. So essentially he's telling them, God wants you to hear the good news. God wants you to hear the gospel. He wants you to hear about Jesus' salvation that he made available. Okay? And what he's going to do from here is he's going to preach the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the remission of sins. Okay? And we're going to see him step by step lay out this, how Jesus died, was buried, and he rose the third day victorious over death, hell, and the grave to make available salvation to whosoever believeth on him. Okay? And so verse number 27, For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. So he's saying that these Jews that were at Jerusalem, even though they were very aware of the prophecies surrounding Christ and what God was going to do, that they read them every Sabbath day, they were familiar with them, but they also, through their ignorance, fulfilled the prophecies that they were ignorant of. And so this is maybe somewhat confusing to us because we see now through faith and through uh, our understanding of scriptures how Jesus came and that he was that one that was prophesied, the one that was foretold. But the Jews were reading through these passages, they were reading these prophecies, and they were blinded to them so much so that they were the fulfillment of those prophecies, didn't even realize it. And so he goes into how they fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. So there's his death. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher, his burial. And then verse number 30, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten you. So he's going to be going into not just the death, burial, and resurrection, but he's going to be taking them back to their own scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. Verse number 34, and as concerning that, and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. 
Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou art, or excuse me, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So now he's making them think through these passages that they have been reading all their lives, these passages they could probably quote by heart. And he says, you know how in the scriptures that God promises to give you the sure mercies of David, and David is dead and buried and decayed and long gone. So how are you to receive the sure mercies of David? You're going to receive them from those who were born of his lineage, from that one that God has promised. It tells us that dead, uh, that, that David was dead and buried. And in verse number 35, he refers to the psalm where it says, uh, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. That means that he's not going to allow his holy one to die, be buried, and rot away. This is referring to the resurrection. And so he tells the people who are listening to him, you know these scriptures, you're familiar with these promises, but you've been blinded to them. David is not the one that's going to show you mercy. It's one that's going to be born of his lineage. David did not fulfill this prophecy of not seeing corruption. He did not resurrect, but Jesus did. And so Jesus is the one who is going to be of the, the seed of Jesse, of the house of David, who is going to be showing mercy unto you. Because that's what they needed, right? They needed mercy. They needed forgiveness. They needed salvation. He is going to be the one that shows you mercy. He is the one that fulfilled the prophecy of not seeing corruption. And so they understood that the, the Messiah would be born of a virgin, which Jesus was. They understood that he was going to rule and they, he was going to reign, but they never connected the dots that he was going to have to die, be buried, and raise the third day. They never connected the dots that the mercy that they needed was an eternal mercy, that they were needing forgiveness of their sins, that they were needing eternal life rather than just mercy in the hands of their enemies. Okay? And so in verse number 38, he says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus is where you receive salvation, not from your enemies, but from the sin that is going to condemn you to eternal hell. He says it's through Jesus that you receive that forgiveness. Verse 39, And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so this would be ringing true in their ears. We can't really transport ourselves back. We can't really uh, relate to them real well and understand how they would have been receiving these things because this is completely new stuff for them. This is something that is groundbreaking truth for them. And for us, it's kind of old hat, right? And so as they're hearing this, they're like, yeah, we have never been able to be justified by our works through the law because they could think back if they would be honest with themselves at all the times that they have broken the law. 
They were familiar with the guilt and the shame that they still had on themselves, knowing that they were coming short of God's commands. They knew that they had to offer up these sacrifices, that they had to do all these different things, just trying to be right with God, and that they were failing to do so. And they were yearning for, desiring to be justified, to be cleansed in the sight of God. And Paul tells them here that Jesus has made a way that you can be justified, that you can be cleansed from all things, all of your sins blotted out, all of your guilt erased by faith in Jesus Christ. And this would have been a lot for them to swallow, right? And so he he kind of ends here with a warning. Verse number 40, Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers and wonder. Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though man declare it unto you. He says, The prophets have foretold of this day that as I am preaching and declaring the truth to you, that there are many people who are going to refuse to listen. Don't be one of those people. And so as we go through all of this passage, he puts an emphasis over and over on the workings of God. He shows that man is not able to do the things that God has done. That man is not able to bring about salvation to himself. He's not able to keep the law, but that God, down throughout history, has orchestrated a plan. He has brought it to fruition, even in spite of those who tried to keep it from happening. And he brought a plan, and he made salvation available to whosoever will. And he foresaw that many was going to reject it, and Paul begged them not to reject God's offer of salvation. This was his message. And so coming back to us, applying this to us today, God wants the gospel to go out. He wants us to be witnesses. In order for us to do so, we need to go to people who we have a connection with, people who can relate, right? That's not saying that there are people that we're going to say, no, I'm not even going to talk to them. I have nothing in common with them. But this is going to be probably the ones that's going to listen to you the best is those that you have a connection with. And whenever there is an open door, whenever there is someone willing to listen, what you're going to have to do is determine what they already understand, what they already know, right? This is what Paul is doing. He is starting off, he's familiar with what they understand, what they know. They know the law. They know the prophets. They're familiar with the Old Testament. And he starts from their understanding of that and explains to them more in depth, more in detail, bringing them to Christ from that. Now, we're not dealing, for the most part, we're not dealing with Jews, right? But we are dealing with Catholics. We are dealing with Protestants. We're dealing with atheists. We're dealing with uh, cultural Christians, all these different things. What is their understanding? And I'll tell you, if someone starts out with saying, I don't even believe there's a God and I am not willing to even consider the possibility of there being a God. Where do you go with that? Is there very much you can do? That's where you pray, right? The Holy Spirit's going to have to open up their heart. He's going to have to open up their understanding. 
You want to keep that door open. You want to be genuine in front of them. You want to speak when you have the uh, the opportunity. But that person who is an atheist, you're not going to convert them with one conversation. Right? But if they're willing to, to consider the idea that there is a God, if they're willing to listen to the truths of God's word and proofs that God is there and that he is in this world, then you have the opportunity to begin a conversation with them, answering their questions, communicating with them about their concerns about God. You have uh, all sorts of things that you can uh, take them to of proof and evidences that there is a God. You can appeal to their desire for there to be a God, right? Another thing that's important is what do they believe about the Bible? Right? A lot of people just go straight into a gospel presentation, take them to the Romans road, right? But if they think this is just a book that man made up that's written by humans and that God has nothing to do with it, that it's on par with the, uh, the Quran and the Book of Mormon and the Hindu Vedas, if they think that it's just another religious book, then does it really matter what verses that you can quote to them? Not so much. So the conversation that has to be had there is on the reliability of Scripture and why we can build our lives upon what this book says and evidences, proofs that we understand that this is more than just a book. This is more than just out of man's imagination. We can talk to them about how it was compiled, that it's not just a book, it's a collection of books. It is a collection of books that were penned by some 40 authors over 1,500-year period on three different continents in three different languages by people of all different professions, and yet it all comes together cohesively and tells one story. Right? That's a pretty incredible book. And if we would just... Even as Christians, as people with a similar understanding of the things of God, if we would set out to try to pin down such a book and each one of us would be assigned a different part of that book, could you imagine what a mess that would end up being? And we're not even separated in continents. We're not even separated in time and all these different things. But instead, we are all together in one place, in one time, living in a similar culture, right? And so it is incredible to me that the Word of God, the way that it was formulated, the way that it came together, people start saying, well, there's errors in the Bible. But for some reason, no one can tell me where they're at. That's just something that people throw up to try to deflect, right? And so they say there are errors. They can't show me an error. But whenever we start looking, a lot of times they'll say, well, there's got to be copyist errors. It's been translated. It's been written over and over and over again. But yet we can find very, very early manuscripts compared to what we have today, and they agree. They match. It has not been corrupted over 2,000 years of translation and copying and everything. still hasn't been corrupted. That in and of itself is a miracle. And so we're talking here about whenever we are seeking to share the gospel with people, when we are seeking to be a witness to people, okay, they have to at least be open to the possibility that there is a God. They have to understand that this isn't merely just some book, but this is, in fact, 
the word of God, that God put into the hearts and the minds of men what he wanted pinned down in this book, and he caused it to be written the way that he wanted it, and he has preserved it down through the ages. And if we can come to the place where they understand that there is a God and that this book is true and it's something that we can find the truth of God's word in, then we are able to take the word of God and show them what he says about their condition before him. We can take and show them how Jesus Christ, the reason that he came to this earth, the reason that he was born, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, the reason that he was crucified on a cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, and rose the third day, was that we had a debt that we couldn't pay. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That Jesus came to purchase salvation, to pay the penalty for our sins, to offer life and hope for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. But as we look at this passage and we see how Paul has uh, expounded on them the truths that they already knew, tied together these things, uncovered what they were blinded to, he ultimately gave them a choice. He put it in their lap, if you will. He said, the ball is in your court, but he says, don't be like the ones that were prophesied of, the ones that were foretold that would refuse to believe, that would refuse to accept what God has done, even though it was told them. And so we see their response here in verse number 42. It says, and when the Jews were going out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached unto them the next Sabbath day. And so he just kind of left it there. He didn't push, he didn't force, he didn't pry, but he challenged them. And they dismissed from the synagogue and they had lots to talk about. Okay? They had lots to talk about. And the Gentiles were excited about it. It says, the Gentiles said, please come back. We want to hear more about this. Come and preach this next week. We're going to bring more people out. And so they have an open door there. And verse number 43, now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So there were a group that believed, a group that accepted out of this. And then verse 45 starts with the word but. There were those who believed, but when the Jews saw that the, saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. So they'd had their little synagogue. They'd been meeting together, meeting together every week. All of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas comes. They preach a message. A lot of people believe it. Now all of the Gentiles, which the Jews aren't too fond of, are excited about this message, and they are crowding in. They are wanting to hear. They are surrounding Paul, and now the leaders of the synagogue, and now the Jews are losing their following. They are losing their power, and it says that they now are envious. Paul and Barnabas, oh, Johnny come lately, all of a sudden is bringing all of these people out. They are getting excited and we've been here all this time and they don't want anything to do with us, right? And so they are jealous and it says that they respond 
by rejecting, by contradicting and blaspheming and trying to discredit everything that Paul and Barnabas had said. Remember, whenever the gospel goes out, whenever the truth is being preached, there's going to be opposition. There are going to be those who are going to be against it. And so verse number 46, Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it, put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And so this is the pivoting point. They Their focus is left from the Jews. They are now focusing on the Gentiles because the Jews are rejecting the gospel. Verse 47, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Wasn't just... Uh, to be a Jewish thing. It was for the entire world. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. So lots of people getting saved, a lot of people getting excited about it. Verse 50, we've got another but. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. And so all along, God is orchestrating this. He has, he has formulated this plan from the very beginning. He has caused it to come to pass. He has uh, led his people to go out and to spread the gospel even through persecutions, even through hardships. And the gospel is going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the uttermost parts of the earth. And praise the Lord that it is because we are here today as beneficiaries of the work that they did back then, of the work that the Holy Spirit did in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. But there's always going to be those who resist, always those who reject. We can't be disheartened by that because there are those who are going to accept it with joy. They are going to grow. They are going to uh, be uh, multiplied both individually, spiritually, and in number. We see this going on. And they were, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. God is doing a work. He is seeking to save to the ends of this earth. And it is up to us to be desirous of his will, to be submissive to his use, and he can do great things in us and through us if we will allow. And so for us, as we're trying to be witnesses, uh, he'll open up doors. Uh, we have to be mindful of how we speak. And then even at the end of this, we saw that God had a way of moving them on, right? We get hung up in this idea, how do we find the will of the Lord, right? Well, they knew that it was time to, to leave that city whenever they got through out, right? I'm not saying that you, you go until you get through out, but God can make his will plain. Whether it is at the beginning of this chapter, whenever he says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. And at the end, they get kicked out of the city and Paul and Barnabas look at each other and say, yes, it's time to move on, right? But God has a way of putting us where we need to go, of guiding us if we will Submit to him and serve him. So does anyone have any questions or comments on what we've looked at this morning?
Yes, I am <clears throat> I, I tired of reading the act of the apostle. Mm -hmm. Because it gave birth to, mm -hmm. to, the, to the church of God. Mm -hmm. And then every time I read it, I become so inspired. Mm -hmm. Right from Acts chapter 1, see how that the apostles listen and obey instructions mm -hmm. from Christ that they must be the one accord praying. And mm -hmm. that alone you know, give them you know, breakthrough in most of their mm -hmm. going in and coming out. And here again, you see the Holy Spirit instructed that separate for me Paul and Barnabas. Mm -hmm. And they were laid hands on and the Spirit of God came upon them. Mm -hmm. That is exactly why they were able to succeed even in the face of opposition. Mm -hmm. Look at the Gentiles. There was this eagerness that his brothers, if you have anything for us, come and declare it. Mm -hmm. The verses that preceded that was the experience of Paul and Bargilos, mm -hmm. even in the palace of uh, Sergiopoulos. Mm -hmm. How Bargilos tried to prevent the king mm -hmm. from obeying Paul and all that happened to Bizos, we all know. Mm -hmm. All this happened because the Spirit of God was leading. Yes. Now, the same thing we can also achieve. You are the person that how do we through uh, the gospel to different sets of people in our community? Mm -hmm. the, the, the unbelievers, the idol worshippers, mm -hmm. the Catholic, and so on and so forth. If mm -hmm. This, if we are led by the Spirit, mm -hmm. right? We are not going there to speak our own words, mm -hmm. but we we'll be led by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. If truly we are born again mm -hmm. and we have crucified the flesh, mm -hmm. and the Spirit of God is working in us mm -hmm. and through us, God will give us how to approach each scenario mm -hmm. that comes out of us. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's very important. That's that's what we're seeing throughout all of Acts here is how it is God that's doing the work through surrendered people. And I think that's where we, we do fall short today is that we try to do everything by our own means, by our own way, by our own ideas, our own methods, rather than daily seeking after him, daily allowing him to be in control. That's what Whenever it says, be filled with the Spirit, that means allowing Him to be in control. Allowing Him to guide through His Word, through His promptings and His Spirit and things like this. And He can guide us. And even in these opportunities that we have whenever there is an open door, if our focus, our attention has been on God, if we're allowing Him to work in us and to lead us, then He is able to uh, give us the words that we need to say in that time. And He's able to give us wisdom of when to speak and when to be quiet, right? Anything else? Okay, well, there's nothing else. Let's go ahead. We'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a short break for the next service. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you so much for the, the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. And Lord, we just thank you for everyone who's gathered out today. And we just ask that you would uh, uh, just bless this service, Lord, for the the lifting up of your people, the encouraging of your people. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would call upon you. I pray for us as believers, Lord, that we would see the importance of allowing you to be in control, of allowing you to lead and direct and to guide us. 
And Lord, that we would have the desire to uh, submit, to surrender to you and allow you to use us and work in our lives and work through us. We thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. And all this is we pray in Jesus' name and amen.